0: One of the valuable insights that we all gain on a longer retreat like this, as we see our practice come together, fall apart, come together, fall apart, the joys, the sorrows, the highs, the lows, again and again and again and again, one of the insights that begins to grow in us is that this path of practice is not a straight-line affair. It is uh, a very incremental, gradual, cyclical process. But it continues to amaze me how I, as some of you have acknowledged, when we're in the grips of paralyzing doubt or we're in the when we're in the exuberance of uh, stable confidence, we can think that this is the way it's going to be forever. <laughs> so, many of us are asking at about this time of the retreat, <clears throat> am I ever going to get it together? <laughs> 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 or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Am I ever going to be satisfied with my practice? Is it ever going to smooth out? When is it going to stop this up and down and round and around? And? There are three important transformations that are occurring as we continue to practice through these cycles. First, our understanding of what practice is actually doing, becomes clearer. Secondly, to survive the continual up and down, coming together, falling apart, and to keep going, we have to reaffirm our aspiration to walk this path. And thirdly, we begin this practice with some, some sort of self-confidence, some sort of efficacy, some uh, belief that, well, I can do it, or at least I can try it. And it's a very unstable, erratic, and self-centric confidence. And in this practice of coming together, falling apart, time and time again, we actually let go of that false and erratic self-confidence, and we gain a deepening and stabilizing confidence in the Dhamma, the way things are, because we've seen it over and over again. The whole purpose of all of our instructing, informing, explaining, exhorting, inspiring, entertaining stuff is to keep you on this process, going through these transformations. We'll do whatever it takes to keep you here, doing it, (laughs) getting through the next high, the next low. Because the process has a life of its own. We may not understand it. We rarely have a a comprehensive perspective. But it is happening. Slowly, gradually, incrementally. We're being transformed. Fortunately, along the way, there are some confirming experiences for us. And these confirming experiences are what Tonight, I want to call good practice. We've all had periods of good practice. I don't mean by good practice that um, we've got what we wanted, or that it's been pleasant, or even that it's been noticeable. But what I mean by good practice is when there's some momentum to our mindfulness, when we are actually seeing things as they are. Slowly but surely as we persist in applying our energy and attention to the objects of choice or the arising objects, we do grow in mindfulness. And the continuity of mindfulness deepens our concentration, which reveals an interesting mental landscape and sometimes an exotic spiritual terrain. These non-ordinary experiences of good practice offer an initial confirmation that indeed the Dhamma, the way things are is accessible to us. We don't have to figure it out. We don't have to know it beforehand. We don't have to make it happen. But we can access it. We can learn to recognize the way things are, even if it isn't what we want, what we would choose. it requires a delicate letting go of our hopes, our dreams, our fantasies about what this practice is going to do for us. And an opening to what this practice actually does to us. Tonight I want to speak about another list from the Abhidhamma and this is a list of ten called the Ten Upakalesas or the Ten Corruptions of Insight because these corruptions of insight are the confirming experiences that we look for in practice and many of us come to practice with some hope some wish, some belief that these experiences are really what we're looking for. And indeed they are a result of good practice. But if they're hung on to, if they're identified with, if we stake our claim on them, they become an obstacle, a corruption of deepening insight. The question, what are we doing here, is clarified by the experiences of good mindfulness, sublime tranquility, opening insight, and stabilizing equanimity. The question, can I do it? Is affirmatively answered by the experiences of confidence, energy, luminosity, joy, happiness, and a sense of gratification. As we uncover these good practice experiences, they offer us the opportunity to confirm the Dhamma not ourself. But it's a subtle understanding of them that offers us, that gives us this valuable opportunity to confirm the Dhamma. So what are we doing here? When I went to Burma to practice with Saira Upandita, I was reporting to him daily. And for better or worse, he is a very demanding uh, meditation master who has an understanding of the mind and how it unfolds in practice from his perspective. And so he asks, demands, expects that you will report your experiences in a certain way. And like almost everyone who has ever practiced with Upandita, I suffered the first few weeks of trying to get this formula down. How to talk about my experiences in his format. And it can be done, (laughs) but it takes, uh, it's a learning process to learn how to do it. It requires, in short, that we talk about our primary object, the breath, secondary objects in meditation, in a very objective way, without comment, without um, uh, figuring out, without analyzing, just just the facts, you know? I observed the rising, uh, stretching, pressure, tightening, you know, and then I observed the falling, and it was relaxation, tangling, whatever it is, and a few other comments about practice. It seems a most limited way of talking about practice. No long rambling justifications, reflections, doubts, uh, comparisons allowed. They'd be cut off in midstream. So it doesn't take long before we have a comprehensive vocabulary for describing the breath. And it soon becomes very repetitive. But one day after, I don't know, a month or two of reporting every day, the sign went up on Upandita's door. Hereafter, Sayadaw doesn't want you to say anything in your report that you've ever said before. You know, been there, done that, don't have to hear it again. Well, this set off a mad scramble for um, searching for new and exciting reportable experiences. And if you couldn't come up with one in the last 24 hours, then a creative way of saying uh, the same thing differently. It was unbelievably frustrating, demanding. But what I later came to realize is that practice is, you know, a cyclical up and down process. We hit peaks, we hit troughs, and there's a whole lot of in-between that we've seen before. Sayadaw wanted to hear about the peaks and the troughs. Because that's where our that's the cutting edge of our practice. That's the place where we are in the unknown. Just opening to the new, the unfamiliar, the unrecognized, the unseen, the unhabituated. And it's at that place that we need skillful guidance. So that we don't get caught. So we don't get stuck. Everything in between, we've been through it a hundred thousand times. We'll go through it that many times again. The edge of our practice is often and only revealed in those times called good practice. We all have these times. We all have periods when... The momentum is there, and we see things new, differently. And they may be extraordinarily unpleasant. Not what we want at all, but it's new. It's a new way of seeing. Or it may be sublime and subtle and exquisite and delightful. And that's also a new way, a new place of seeing. Often we don't even recognize them because we are so captured by the familiar. One yogi recently came into an interview exclaiming, what I was noting as calm last week would now feel like agitation the calm of letting go rather than the forced calm of keeping it together. And we all have had this shift in perspective where we suddenly realize that where we've been hanging out in some calm is really a very agitated state. Mature mindfulness recognizes and registers these different perceptions, these different understandings, these shifts. And at some times, or at these times, we can enter another dimension of practice where we might feel intimately connected with what's going on and completely aloof from it at the same time, untouched by it. A sense of being very calm, still, unperturbed, in the face of a raging storm of activity. We really feel stillness in the midst of activity, tranquility in the midst of activity. When the body is effortlessly upright, light, pain-free, energy flowing through the body. Where I go snorkeling in Maui, there's a place. And I've watched the fish in this place. And some fish don't move around. They stay in one place. But it takes a lot of energy and activity for them to stay there because the tide is coming in and the waves are coming in. And they're just moving all around, but they're staying in the same place. Well, that's something like what sitting is. We do a lot of mental activity in order to stay still. Bill Russell is a basketball player on the Celtics some years ago. And he wrote about the experience of what I call good practice. So instead of the image being basketball, imagine that this person is writing about practice. He writes, every so often a Celtic game would heat up so that it became more than a physical or mental game. It would be magical. That feeling is difficult to describe, and I certainly never talked about it when I was playing. When it happened, I could feel my play rise to a new level. It came rarely, and would last anywhere from five minutes to a whole quarter or more. Three or four plays were not enough to get it going. It would surround not only me and the other Celtics, but also the players on the other team, and even the referees. At that special level, all sorts of odd things happened. The game would be in a white heat of competition, yet somehow I wouldn't feel competitive, which is a miracle in itself. I'd be putting in the maximum effort, straining, coughing up parts of my lungs as we ran, and yet I never felt any pain. The game would move so quickly that every fake cut and pass would be surprising, and yet nothing could surprise me. It was almost as if we were playing in slow motion. During those spells, I could almost sense how the next play would develop and where the next shot would be taken. Even before the other team brought the ball in bounds. I could feel it so keenly that I wanted to shout to my teammates, it's coming over there, except that I knew that everything would change if I did. My premonitions would be consistently correct, and I always felt then that I not only knew the Celtics by heart, but I also knew all the opposing players and that they all knew me. There have been many times in my career when I felt moved or joyful, but these were the moments when I had chills pulsing up and down my spine. Sometimes the feeling would last all the way up to the end of the game, and when that happened, I never cared who won. I can honestly say that those few times were the only ones that I did not care. I don't mean that I was a good sport about it, that I'd played my best and had nothing to be ashamed of. On the five or ten occasions when the game ended in that special level, I literally did not care who had won. If we lost, I'd still be as free and high as a hawk. Sometimes we open to that magical play in our practice, when it's effortless. We know everything. We're connected to everyone. We don't lose sight of the ball, so to speak. One of the qualities of this good practice is the balance of mind, the non-reactivity in the face of these pleasurable and painful experiences. In the beginning of our practice, mostly we're reacting. If something's pleasant, we react with grasping, attachment, liking, indulging. If something's unpleasant, we react with aversion, anger, frustration, disappointment, self-judgment. But when practice gets some momentum, and we've all seen this, it literally doesn't matter. Pleasant, painful, doesn't matter. The mind still sees it as just the arising phenomena that it is. At such times, we expose our hidden expectations, our hopes, our misunderstandings, that practice is somehow about getting rid of the unpleasant. We see through that misbelief. And we fall into the place in practice where we take delight in knowing just for the sake of knowing. Whatever is arising When that happens, it's easy to put aside any agenda of what we think practice is about or what we should be doing in practice. When pleasure and pain are seen with balance, with equanimity, they're not identified with as mine or not mine. The transformation occurs from, not from suppression or repression or controlling, but from letting go. Time can be distorted. Energy can be effortless. But the most distinctive characteristic of the balance of the mind is experience becomes subtle. And often, when we first come upon strong equanimity in practice, we may think, nothing's happening because the familiar reactivity is gone. And so we almost are bored with this uninteresting, unexciting, non-demanding practice. But sometimes as we wake up to the sublimity of what is actually occurring in that dynamic stillness, that non-reactivity, we may unknowingly begin to believe Uh aha, this is it. It isn't. (laughs) And it's good to find that out. Our expectations can prevent us from actually moving on, letting go of this experience of good practice and seeing that it too is really just another impermanent, impersonal, an ultimately unsatisfying experience. The sign at the top of the stairs says, try not to expect anything. In that way, everything will open up to you. It's hard not to expect anything. When the mind becomes energized, the momentum of mindfulness picks up, the balance of mind becomes apparent. The door of the mind opens to insight. Seeing beneath the appearance of things Vipassana, seeing the underlying nature of all of this stuff, its impermanence, its unsatisfaction or dissatisfaction, and the impersonal nature of it. Now, all of us have heard, probably since we've been practicing, about Anicca, Anatta, and Dukkha. And sometimes we struggle to understand them reflectively apply them to our life now, our life in the past, our life in the future. And sometimes we can, we can see, we, yeah, things are impermanent. And grudgingly we may be able to acknowledge, yeah, things are dukkha, at least some things. And occasionally we can get our mind around the idea of anatta. But when the truth and dukkha arises, it means that we see that the momentary experiences that we've been having, looking for, hoping for, getting, do not actually provide the satisfaction we had hoped they would. Even when practice gets good. Insight into dukkha opens, revealing the inability to feel satisfied with good practice. That's the nature of insight into dukkha. Or we uh, have some good practice and the experience of insight, deepening insight into anicca or impermanence arises. What does that mean? That means as soon as we get there, we realize how unstable it is. That it's not gonna stay this way. We know that, that's the, intuit- that's the nature of intuitive insight. We can't rest there and we know that deeply. And so there is this sense of always having to keep up, make more effort, try again, come back, begin again, over and over. This is, this is insight into impermanence. can't maintain mindfulness. It really amazes me. I, I do it too, so I'm not telling tales on anyone. We've been here, some of us, for two and a half months. And we come in to, to, to report and we say, you know, my momentum's gone. Practice, bottomed out yesterday. No mindfulness yesterday. We've all had those days. It was just like the first day of the retreat. Come on. It feels that way, yeah. Good insight. We see nothing is permanent. Nothing is stable. We can't even keep our own momentum of mindfulness going. This is actually good insight. Nobody said it was gonna be pleasant, remember. (laughs) This is one of the hopes, one of our dreams, one of our fantasies of what practice is going to do for us. Suddenly we're going to feel it's okay. It's not. Dukkha says it's not going to feel okay. Initially, when we open up to these truths of impermanence and dukkha and anatta, very unpleasant, not what we came here for. Definitely not in the brochure advertised. You know, come experience, no. This is not, not truth in advertising. But, nevertheless, we do get used to it. How many of us are still sitting with pain in the body? We've gotten used to it, to a degree. How many of us are sitting here with this frustration day after day? When is my practice ever going to get together? We've gotten used to it. We keep doing it. Mm. The insight into Anicca Nata Dukkha is taking hold. We're confirming again and again and again and again. This is the way it is. You don't have to listen to us tell you. We're just going to encourage you to keep sitting here and see for yourself. This is the way it is. The insights into Anicca, Anatta, and Dukkha are not all unsatisfying. Because in that deepening acceptance and realization of these truths, there is another experience that grows in our registers, in our being, in our consciousness. And that's the taste of freedom. The taste of, okay, this is happening, and so what? I don't have to be jerked around by it. My happiness or unhappiness doesn't really depend on whether this is a painful or pleasant sitting. And we all get a taste of that. I mean, who of us is still hanging on to the idea that a good sitting is going to do it for us? None. Of, we've all gotten rid of that idea. So what is growing here? There's a taste, there's a real experience of being free from that, fantasy, that belief, that hope, that wish, and there's a real taste. We've all had many deep tastes of freedom. That's what keeps us sitting on the cushion. Good mindfulness, equanimity, effortless energy, balanced mind, deepening insight. I remember when I first started practice some years ago, you know how it is, it's excruciating. The body and mind are just unpleasant place to live but somehow i got this little taste of freedom a little taste of spaciousness and i would say to you know my unsuspecting parents and siblings you know this practice is the hardest thing i've ever done and there's nothing i would rather do it sounds oxymoronic but it's true It is the hardest thing you'll ever do, and it offers the greatest reward. In that initial years of retreat practice, practicing the Dhamma, I, along with probably most of you, came with some curiosity, of course, but some understanding that this was something that I could probably do, like, you know, other things we've all done, jobs, relationships, school. And I came with high hopes, unrealistic expectations, unacknowledged fear, blind faith, and a lot of personal ambition. These are a natural result of our conditioning, our cultural conditioning. But this self-confidence, this can-do attitude, this feeling of being effective in our practice is tentative and fragile. In part, because it's based on a sense of ourself that relies on unstable conditions. And when we get into practice, when we just sit and watch for a day or two, the conditions change and our self-confidence goes out the window. We feel inadequate, we feel that we're doing something wrong, we can't stay with the breath for two breaths in a row. It doesn't take long before we begin to judge ourselves. we feel frustrated, we're disappointed in ourselves, we feel hopeless, despair, and often we want to give up. It is impossible to think our way out of doubt. This question, can I do this practice? We can't think our way to the answer. If we do, if we somehow pull back, think about how good we really are, how competent we are, how much we know, and get a little self-confidence. As soon as we go back to practice, we have to let go of it. Conditions change, out goes that self-confidence. You can't think yourself to self-confidence. You can only practice your way to a stable knowing. Don Juan encouraged Carlos, by saying that a man or woman of knowledge doesn't consider the events of life as blessings and curses, but rather as challenges or opportunities for gathering power or understanding. Whether it's difficult or not, it's another opportunity. Can I be present with this? When we recognize good practice, those times of practice when there is that effortless momentum, that deepening insight, we're noticing everything, feeling calm, serene, then a confidence appears which is not based on some self-image. But a confidence, a stability, an assurance, a trust. Oh, this is the way it is not because we've thought it through, not because someone's told us, but because we really see for ourselves. oh, I know, oh, this is the way it is. A confidence grows that's unshakable. Nobody can take that knowledge away from you. I was telling someone today, from the perspective of being in the middle of a three-month retreat, we may not feel like we're getting much, or that we feel even very confident. But when we leave and we re-enter the, the the world out there, our normal life, so to speak, we have a reservoir of knowledge about ourselves, The way we work, the way we personally work, our minds, our bodies, our hopes, our dreams, our fantasies, what works, what doesn't work. We have that a vast, a very deep-rooted pool of knowledge that will guide us, that, that informs the way we live our life. Nobody can give you that knowledge. Nobody can give you that confidence of knowing yourself that well. You can only get it from sitting on this cushion and watching it go by, knowing, it's just seeing, this is the way the mind, my mind, and body works. Oh, okay. It may not work like we want it to, or hoped it would, but we do know oh, this is the way it goes. That confidence is invaluable. It grows. It's one of the transformations that takes place as we sit here, day after day. Maybe the most appreciated aspect of good practice is the experience of effortless energy. When we really do see that we don't have to push, that there we can settle back and we can let the energy carry us trusting mindfulness to be there where we feel alert and at ease at the same time where we operate at our peak but without a sense of struggle another distinctively unfamiliar experience that sometimes appears in good practice, and I'll mention it for those of you who are wondering how to understand this. There sometimes appears in practice an enlightening perception in the mind. Unfortunately, the English word for awakening wisdom is enlightenment. And many of us get this idea that, well, it's got something to do with light. You know, a light lighting up in the mind or something like that. You know, not a Sylvania or a GE bulb, but something happening. And it does happen as we do gain momentum in practice that the mind becomes bright. And we can be sitting in a totally dark room and feel like somebody has a spotlight shine on us. There may be uh, rolling images of light or flashing light or bright lights or steady lights, pulsing lights, throbbing lights, strobe lights, uh, playing across the sky, rippling, uh, colors bright and dim and intensifying. and It can become a real light show. And, and some of you Have this experience, so I'm not uh, misleading you, but it's very fascinating. It's due in part to the continuity of attention, a brightening of the mind, a lightening of the mind, but it is very seductive. It is compellingly interesting to start playing with, to get fascinated by these lights. It's just kind of a curious, I wonder what, you know, and we're just sitting there and the light show starts and we think, hey, what, what's going on here? You know, and we open our eyes to see if somebody's taking flashes in the room and they're not, and close our eyes and the sun comes out and the cloud goes past the sun and yeah. the sun isn't out and the clouds aren't going by, but it seems that way. And so we begin to play with these experiences and, well, I wonder if this can happen and that can happen, and sure enough, if we play with them long enough, we can make it do anything. But it's a great trap. Our task, our job at the time, is to just notice seeing. To just put aside the fascination, that sense of oh boy, something's happening now. Just put that aside. Realize that there's some expectation, some fascination, some delight. But what's really happening? Just seeing. If we can do that, if we can recognize things as they really are, just seeing, then our insight can continue and deepen. If we get caught, if we play, if we stop to play, take delight, then our insight stops right there. It's a sign of good practice, and as soon as it appears, it becomes an obstacle. That's why they call it corruption of insight. We've mentioned before in some of the talks the experience of joy that arises in practice. Not because we're, you know, trying to feel joyful about these uh, dukkha-filled experiences, not that at all. But it's through observing carefully, without comment, without judging, without evaluating, and just taking a a fascinated interest in what's happening. And just uh, curiously wanting to know, just for the sake of knowing. Then, of course, the mind takes delight and the experiences of uh, joy, thrills and chills and flashes and rapturous feelings arise. And again, it's uh, extraordinarily pleasurable, sometimes uh, ecstatic, uh, a simmering sense of specialness as if we're in the presence of the divine Uh, sometimes a feeling of like, oh boy, something's going to happen now. (laughs) And, you know, it's very seductive. We just get on this roller coaster that's just one more high and pretty soon I'm going to be there. But it never comes. Because this is not it. The feeling is, this is it. I just got to hang in there for a... Just one more sitting or one more breath or one more day, whatever it is, and I'll get it. You won't. Because that's not it. We have to see through this corruption of insight. It comes as a result of good practice. No denying that. It's thrilling. It's exciting. It is divine. And it's also an obstacle. Our task, you know, if we should accept the path of insight, is to just note it. Thrilling, exciting, divine, uh, you know, ecstasy, rapture, just rapture, just ecstasy, nothing special, just... It's the only way to get past it. It's the only way to get through that experience to not get caught, not get stuck there. So you see, good good practice is both good practice and a hindrance. It's hard to let go of ecstasy. It's what we've looked for. It's what we've hoped for. It's what we've imagined. The goal. The result. Good practice. Many of us are just hoping for a taste. But it's not as satisfying as freedom. We really see this taking delight in is a form of bondage. This is a form of being caught, trapped, held, unfree. So in order to encourage you to let go, we promise you something better. You know, if you can just let go of this ecstasy, you'll settle into something even better happiness, mature ecstasy, smooths out into this sukha, this happy comfort of mind and body, much smoother, much subtler, much more exquisite. Not so gross and uh, exciting, but a feeling of just sitting on top of the world tranquil and alert, strong, capable, where everything seems perfect. When we open to this sukha, where we just can't imagine greater ease in the mind and the body, it is a powerfully confirming experience that we're on the path, that we're headed in the right direction. If we see that this experience is the result of good practice and we don't claim it as mine, I made it happen, I'm responsible for it. If we see that it is the natural result of attentiveness, then we can remain free. If we claim it as mine, I made this happen, I have this experience, then we create a new but subtle bondage. It is this taking satisfaction in temporary, momentary experiences which most hinders our deepening insight and freedom. That sense of gratification. Uh Aha, this is it. I've got it. I've had it however we misunderstand these experiences of good practice. That sense of gratification, delightful as it is, whether it's tranquility, deep stable confidence, effortless energy, flashing strobe lights in the mind, ecstasy, subtle happiness, exquisite insight, whatever experience of good practice we have, we can become identified with it, attached to it, and then it becomes an obstacle. See them, see your practice, See the good times in your practice, acknowledge them. It's important to do that because they are powerfully confirming experiences. They clarify our understanding of what we're doing with this practice. They are an affirmation of our aspiration. And if we don't claim them personally, They are a powerful statement of confidence in the Dhamma. Recognizing this is the way things are. And in that process or in that confirmation, we don't serve to reaffirm a sense of self. I made it happen. I did it. I can do it. This strengthened confidence in the Dhamma, more powerful than any thought-constructed self-confidence, is rooted in the self-knowledge that we take from a retreat like this. The contaminants of that reliable confidence, such as hope, expectation, anticipation, and ambition have been exposed. They have to be exposed. They have to be seen and let go of. And it is the wise renunciation of gratification that leads to this freedom, this extraordinarily subtle experience of freedom. And it's this confidence that guarantees an increasingly subtle, pervasive freedom in our practice. So let's sit for a couple of minutes. Try not to expect anything. And then, everything opens up to you. Thank you for listening, Dhamma.